Hello, everybody, and welcome to this. Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's Astro Coffee Hangout. My name is Tony Darnell from DeepAstronomy.Space, and today I'm very excited about our hangout. We are going to be talking about the effects of a technologic, that a technological civilization may have on the climate of its host planet, and in particular, the effects of ha if the effects of having a civilization like that, what those effects might be on the planet itself, and whether that civilization has any hopes of surviving those effects. My guest today is Dr. Adam Frank from the University of Rochester, whose recent paper was published in the journal Astrobiology. And the name of the, the article was called the, Anthropo the Anthropocene Generalized Evolution of Exo-Civilizations and Their Planetary Feedback. And we're going to address questions today like, how do we know if, if sustainability, which is the balance of an advanced civilization with the resources of the planet, is actually even possible in the universe? We're going to talk about what are the possible outcomes of using the planet's resources uh, when building a technological civilization. These are questions that uh, Dr. Frank and his colleagues have been asking, and they've, they've developed a model uh, which has sort of given us some outcomes uh, of what might happen, and we're going to talk about those today. Now, I put a link to the press release in the description box of this Hangout uh, with the link to the paper, uh, but all you, but unfortunately, you know, the link to the paper, all you're going to be able to read is the abstract, since uh, you need a subscription to download the PDF file of the paper itself. But the, but that's okay. We don't, we don't need that paper. We have the first author here himself to discuss this paper with us. So, Dr. Frank is also the author. Uh, of a new book, Light of the Stars, Alien Worlds, and the Fate of the Earth, uh, which came out this summer and is available now. I also put a link to that in the description box as well. That's a book that's on my summer reading list before it ends because I, I really want to uh, get more detail into uh, this, this topic. So it, I highly recommend that book uh, as well for you. So that is available and the paper is available. The link is there. But before I get going, let me just say that my co-host, Carol Christian, who's usually here, is at the IAU this week in Vienna and won't be able to join us. Uh, well, she said she might, but I don't, I, I don't think she will because uh, it's really busy out there and the Internet's not so great, apparently, when she tried to join the Skype uh, thing earlier. So uh, let me do what she does at the opening of each Hangout. I need to acknowledge that these live hangouts are designed to give you guys, the general public, and all-around great space fans, access to professional astronomers directly to ask questions and become familiar with their research. This is your chance to learn what it's like to be an astronomer. They are endorsed, these hangouts, by the American Astronomical Society, who, whose support brings these to you every week, and the American Astronautical Society, which brings you the Future in Space hangouts that we have on every other Thursday. So while these hangouts are endorsed by these organizations, any opinions expressed here are not necessarily endorsed by them. So I needed to say that, and we'll go ahead and get, uh, and get going. Uh, I want to encourage all of you to live chat with us in two ways. I have the, li the live chat on YouTube, and I also have our Discord server going. Uh, and the link to the Discord server is also in the description box. Everything's in the description box, folks. Just go there and learn about the universe, because I put all the links to all the things in there. Okay, so let me bring up my uh, my guest. Oh, right there is uh, Dr. Adam Frank from the University of Rochester. Um, hi, Adam. Welcome to the Hangout. Great. Thank you for having me. <laughs> I, I, uh, I know you're very busy, and I'm really happy that you took time out to talk with us about your paper. And, and 
Can, so I did a Space Fan News on this topic uh, a few weeks ago where I was very curious about the nature of the model that you used, and I want to talk about the outcomes that you came to in a bit. But can you give us a general uh, big-picture overview of what you were trying to do, and then we'll talk about your model a little bit. Okay. So uh, what I'm interested in, I have been interested in for a while, is um, – I, I, so along with being a scientist, I'm also, I do a lot of popular writing, uh, you know, written for NPR, did a blog for NPR for many years, write for the New York Times and other places. And so, uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of work uh, in science population dealing with climate and the public, you know, understanding of what's happening with climate. And in many ways, this actually came from that. What I started through my work with NPR, started getting interested or thinking about civilizations as kind of part of the biosphere, as just a, 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 that any biosphere um, that generated a civilization might have the same kinds of things happening to it that is happening to ours. That in some sense, seeing climate change from a very different lens, what I call the astrobiological perspective on climate change. And I was interested in that, you know, because of my deep interest. I've been a science fiction fan since I was a kid, yeah, you know, too. in exo-civilizations, <laughs> um, but also in the sense of what's happening with us right now. What is happening with human civilization and the climate change it's triggering? And, you know, uh, could this in some sense be a generic uh, consequence of a biosphere generating a technological civilization. So there was a number of papers. This paper was actually the culmination of four different uh, works that we did, beginning with a paper that Woody Sullivan and I did in 2014, just outlining, outlining the basic idea that you could use astrobiology and its perspective on planets and life to inform understandings about sustainability. And then we did a second paper that came from that where we actually did a calculation about um, looking at the probability uh, associated with having intel, you know, having exo civilizations. Like, I'm not going to use aliens. We're done using aliens. Yeah. Exo planets and exo atmospheres, and so it's now time to talk about exo civilizations. Um, and so, you know, this work is actually the 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 fourth, and in some sense, a culmination. There's more work to be done of trying to ask this question: What happens generically when a technological civilization emerges on a planet in terms of its interaction? with the planet um looking at it uh again you know when we think about exo civilizations or aliens people have all these kinds of questions about you know what do they look like are they lizards are they insects and, you know that question can't be answered science has no way of really addressing that issue there's no guardrails on that question but uh when it comes to a planet uh, civilization's interaction with its planet we actually know a lot about planets now from visiting you know all the worlds in our own solar system and now we're doing all this modeling and you know getting preparing for uh looking at exoplanets and we have all these different exoplanets so we're really in a position now where i think we can start taking this question very seriously and remarkably it's the one thing you can say about exo civilizations the one thing you can do some science on is actually the one thing that matters most to us which is our fate so how do you yeah but how do you generalize that i mean i i i, I know we have our data point and we can see that there we're having a definite effect on the climate here on our host planet and on our biosphere but it's hard enough to generalize things about how life even got started. But I know you're, we're assuming if there is a, a civilization that is like ours, then what is it doing to it? Is that what you're asking? Because it seems like a hard thing to generalize. 
Well, the remarkable thing is, what I'll argue is, it's actually quite easy to generalize on a certain level. So, you know, science is always about asking the question that you have the tools to answer, right? So when it comes to exo-civilizations, there's lots of questions you'd like to ask. Like I said, you know, you know what do they look like? Uh, are they, what is their political structure like? Are they <laughs> capitalists? Are they Marxists? You know, um, you know, how many sexes do they have? That's one everybody wants to know about. You know, like they have eight, and you know, all of those questions, there is really not much that the science we understand um, can be used. There's not much we can do with the science we understand to, to generalize what's happened here. Because, you know, evolution and biology are so specific. There's so many accidents, so to speak, when it comes to uh, evolution and biology, that anything about sociology or the particulars of their biology, you know, we just don't have, we don't have the guardrails. We don't have the equations, the theory, the, the data points to, um, to constrain that. But when it comes to a civilization's impact on its uh, planet, that actually is a very generic uh, kinds of question because what is a civilization but a way of harvesting energy, right, from the planet? And particularly, we're going to be talking about young civilizations, meaning civilizations at our point in evolution. Meaning, and what I mean by that specifically, is that the only energy available is the energy that the planet gives you, right? right. So, you know, you don't have warp drives or Dyson kind of spheres, yeah. you know, yeah, negative energy. You, you know, basically, if you live on a planet, you're going to have. You can burn stuff, right? Maybe there's fossil fuels, maybe there isn't. That's an open question. But you can burn stuff. There's wind, there's uh, solar, there's geothermal. You know, I can write down all the kinds of ways that a planet might uh, 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 give a young civilization energy to be used. So a civilization is just a means of harvesting energy and using that energy to do work, right? Whatever, And that work is the work of civilization, irrigation, building buildings. Um, so that's a thermodynamic question. Right. That's a very sort of, you know, fundamental thermodynamic question. And when it comes to thermodynamic inputs on planets, as I said, we have lots of data about that. Right. We have Venus. We have Mars. You know, we have complex uh, uh, climate models for those planets. We have Titan, which is this very different kind of system that we actually can you know, do climate model on. And we also have Earth over its 4.5 billion year history. Which and has changed been, quite a bit over the period exactly, that it's been exactly, around. Right? Right. Earth has been, in many ways, you know, Earth has been a bunch of different planets, right? Mm -hmm. So one of the things that really struck me as I was starting to do research on this was that, you know when they, you look at, uh, you see those animations of the, of the continents moving around, right? Oh yeah, and, yeah, the uh, continental yeah, drift, that, when, yeah. Yeah, when you look at those, you see they never go back more than like 600 million years. And I was always like, well, what, what did it look like before that? It turns out in the early parts of Earth's history, there were no continents, you know? Earth was a water world. There were like small islands, essentially. It took a long time for the continents to grow. We really had first what we'll call cratons, which are these sort of, you know, Australia-sized bodies. Um, so, you know, uh, Earth has been a snowball world a number of times where it's That's been right. almost entirely glaciated. So we have all of this data about how planets and their climates respond to changes. So in that way, we can model the, you know, the civilization is just an impact on the planet. So we can model how planets respond to impacts because we have so many examples of planets. And then when it comes to the civilization, we can just use the most basic population biology, right? That basically, you know, if you have an energy source, you get to multiply. And if you multiply, there's more of you and you have an impact on your environment. And if your impact becomes negative, then you die, right? That's it. 
So that's, you know, I'm sorry that if that was a long-winded answer. No, but, no, that's um, what we want. That's exactly what we wanted. So the generalizations that, the, the kinds of inputs that your model used then was that you were able to generalize what are the possible energy sources of a planet, regardless of any of the particulars, there are certain numbers of energy sources a civilization right. might draw from. And then you, uh, another input is the width or the, the width the age of the uh, civilization itself you said is it relatively young it's probably it's relying and by that you mean that it's only relying on the energy of that the planet itself is giving it uh to right. grow um and that and then you just basically uh, ran your model and came out with some possible outcomes Right. That might that might happen. I want to get to those, but I just I guess I I want to ask you first if the if the um uh, how uh, how much did our own ex experience go into your model? I mean, I, I would imagine quite quite a bit of our own uh, what happened here on Earth went into. No, this actually, as well. not at all. Oh, not really? At all. So actually, oh. so let's be you know. So let me let me be very specific. Our, okay. our model. This model is very. Um, uh, very idealized, right? It's a sure. very, it's a first step. So we can talk as we go on about where the next steps are. But this model was really, you know, um, a, a stripped down version of what you'd have to do to really deeply model a civilization. And it's so really that we had two equations. One equation was for the population, right? The civilization's population. So that's that's the first variable we're interested in. Um, the second variable was the state of the planet. You can think of it as the temperature of the planet. Right. Right. So we've got two things that we're going to follow. We're going to follow how the population is doing. You know, is it high? Is it low? Is it collapsing? Is it, you know, running, running away? Um, and the other thing we're going to do is follow the health of the planet as gauged by or the state of the planet as gauged by its temperature. And we're going to we'll start off in the temperature condition or the planetary state that the civilization founded it. Right. So when the civilization was born, what was that? That's our that's our our reference level. Right. So now each equation has parts that relate to each other. So for the uh, the population, you've got a birth rate, right? The, the, the growth rate of the population. And the way we set things up was that the population's growth rate depended on the, um, the, the, the carrying capacity of the planet, right? So the carrying capacity is a very interesting idea. It's like really how many people, how many people can Earth actually sustain right? right that's an open question we think it's somewhere around 10 to 20 to 30 billion after that you know things are do we really so, that high that's amazing i did not well, know that I mean, this is a very debatable you know lots of people are so we can get into a whole bunch of arguments there, right there is, and and that change that's also a function of technology too because the carrying capacity can be altered by the ability to get more yield from a crop for example right. so the way in which you uh, your technological level can affect the carrying capacity of the planet right. as well. Absolutely. I mean, the only reason we're at 7 billion now is because we discovered fossil fuels. <laughs> That's right. And fertilizer. And Without have... that, there's no way you'd have that many people. So, um, so you know, the, the uh, let me actually, let's be clear, the birth and the death rates depend on the carrying capacity, which in turn depended on the state of the planet. So what we had is as the planet's state changed away from where you started, as the planet started to heat up, your carrying capacity would start to come down. Right? Oh, yeah. You know, okay. If Earth drifts off, if we get, you know, eight degrees of global warming, you're going to have a hard time having, you know, seven billion people living on the planet because you're not going to be able to feed them. Your agriculture is going to be very difficult. That's true. That's so, true. Um, so and then we also had a term in there that the more people there were, the well, I mean, that's not the right way of saying if you look then if you then looked at the equation for the planet, we had, you know, the planet had its own internal dynamics. 
But it also, there was a term in there that said that the more people there were, the more the resources were being used and the more thermodynamic feedback you had, so the planet would heat up, right? So the, the, the population change depended on the state of the planet and the state of the planet depended on how the population was changing, right? So they were coupled, Good. right? At each other. And those were the models that we ran. And, and so in, in that sense, it had, you know, we really weren't looking for the details of the earth. We were asking a very general question is you've got a population, they're using the planet's resources. By using those planet's resources, they're changing the state of the planet. But by changing the state of the planet, they're changing their own, you know, the population's own ability to thrive. That was it. Okay. So in that way, I felt like, I mean, people could argue with me that we were doing this sort of very generic model to try and just understand what are the possibilities that come out of this model, right? The beautiful thing about a model is, you know, you can sit around and argue all night about what you think is going to happen. But when you, you know, you build, develop a mathematical model, you understand exactly what's in it. And then you turn the crank and you can be surprised, right? The math and its interactions are going to show you what's going on. And because this was nonlinear, it meant the equations were nonlinearly coupled. It means that like there really were a lot of unexpected uh, kinds of uh, behavior in there. And we saw that actually. Okay. Well, it, what, what, what sort of things surprised you then when you ran the model? Well, here, you know, there was one question we had, which was, um, and I think this is, you know, uh, when I, when I step back into my, um, you know, science communicator hat, and especially somebody who's dealt with a lot of climate denial, you know, and really trying to, you know, talk with the public about climate, you know, one thing I've always tried to stress is like, look, you know, uh, how do we even know that there is such a thing as a sustainable version of our civilization, right? That is what really interests interest me, and I want to get to that point later. But that, right, that's right. that's so, amazing. So, you know, uh, it's entirely possible that the universe just doesn't do long-term sustainable versions of civilization. <laughs> that, that, it's a great – I mean, why should it, right? I mean, there's nothing yeah. that says this has to be a thing that happens. Right, right. right. Maybe every civilization that's born – and, I, I, you know, I would argue – we can go back to that, but I would argue that – you know, this has happened before, mm -hmm. um, that, but that maybe it's possible that every civilization that's born lasts for 200 years and, you know, they, they, they go extinct because of something like climate change. Right. So one of the amazing things was, and it's often, it's, what's really interesting is how when this hit the press and this, you know, we got a lot of press for this paper, everybody was like, you know, oh, climate, you know, or, you know, aliens die from climate change. Everybody missed that there were these solutions. We found there were sustainability solutions where, you know, the population starts to rise very rapidly, as it will. You know, you want, you All right, know. hold on. Let me put this graph up, because this was taken from your um, from your paper, uh, and it's got the four possible outcomes. So, I'm sorry, go ahead. It's now up being shown, just so you know. Okay. So, the, 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 the one that so we called it the soft landing, right? You saw the population rise. The population. So, the population's consuming the resources, and they're making more babies, alien babies, right? Mm -hmm. Um and then because there's more alien babies, there's more effect on the planet. And so you see the, te the planet's temperature rise, right? Mm -hmm. But it's not like it runs away. They managed to come to a nice, sustainable, steady state. The planet has been changed, which is an important point. Everybody should know there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? If you're going to have a big civilization, you're going to affect your planet. But you manage to have a long-term uh, energy using, right? Because, you know, energy using civilization, right? We don't want to have everybody living in the, you know, as caveman days, right? So you managed to have a long, a high population using lots of energy, but in a planet that was, that had reached some kind of stability. So that was really good news. It is according to these models, you know, simplified as they are, there is the cosmic possibility 
of having sustainable long-term civilization. Okay, well, how did you get that graph? We're talking about graph B here that says sustainability on it, right. where both number both are, are growing up, but they also both plateau at a very strategic point. How did you get your model to do this? What had to happen? To did 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 you have to tweak population and and birth rates, or did you have what did you have to do to get? What did your model tell question. you needed so to happen? The model has the model has parameters that go into it, right? right. So you know the population and the uh, planetary temperature are the variables, but then there are parameters associated with all of those different interactions I talked about, right? right. So um, one parameter is the sensitivity of the planet to having energy be used, right? So there's you know either the planet you know so like this is an interesting question. Uh, um, there, it, it turns out that if Earth was further out in the habitable zone, we could probably burn a lot more fossil fuels without triggering climate change. We happen to be in a particularly sensitive domain. Uh, you know, the, the planet's climate is in a sensitive domain such that just the, the fossil fuels we've already burned are pushing us into a drastic climate change. So there's a parameter associated oh, with- but if we just a little bit further out, we'd, be, we'd, we'd have a little more wiggle room. On we'd this. have a little more wiggle room. Exactly. We'd have more time. We could burn more of the fossil fuels and it would take longer to trigger climate change. So that's a parameter. There's parameters associated with the, the birth rates and the uh, you know, the natural birth rates and growth or growth rates of the population. There's a parameter associated with the planet's own internal dynamics. I mean, you know, people, one of the important things to understand is that planets are machines. They're very complicated machines. And once you start it rolling, right, and once you start the planet rolling down the hill from one state, you know, towards another state, you know, you may not be able to stop it, right? And that's the thing everybody worries about, what they call tipping points. So what we found is, you know, we were varying those parameters and we were looking to see, well, what kinds of models would we get as we varied those parameters? And what we found was that there were these broad classes of trajectories. So there was a large part of parameter space for all these parameters where you get sustainable solutions. Oh. There were also broad regions of parameter space where the nastier stuff happened. So, you know, luckily we didn't have to, none of the solutions we're showing, did we have to fine tune, you know, like we had to be like, oh my God, only these you know, particular values of the parameters down to eight decimal places will give us sustainability. <laughs> that was kind of where I was heading. I was hoping this wasn't a super sensitive parameter. You had to work no. really hard to get graph B because we all want no, graph no, B. Actually, there were, like I said, there was, now we didn't go into trying to find how broad those were. We're going to wait for the next stage where we build in more realistic, complex models uh, to try and figure that out. But for right now, it was good to find out that it wasn't hard to find a sustainable solution. Good. That is that, and you're right. That is very encouraging. Yeah. Let me get. Uh, let me just get uh, one cyanide ghost has a question in here. It's relevant to this particular issue. Does, uh, his, his, his question is: There have been major extinctions on this planet when we're having massive die-offs of biodiversity. How does his model even make sense in view of that? Do you take anything like that into account? No. Okay. No. But I mean, it's not. It's not. Well, here's why. Because. What we're doing is we're, we're not modeling everything that's ever happened to the planet. <laughs> we're modeling what happens once a civilization appears. So in some sense, if this was the Earth, we'd only be modeling the Holocene, right? The Holocene is the last 10,000 years of, uh, of, of planetary history, which is like, you know, a blink of the eye, right? So, so we're only modeling what happens once a civilization, a, t a technological energy-intensive civilization emerges. So, you know, all the previous history, whether there's been die-offs or not, don't matter for where we're starting our civilization. So, so maybe there have been die-offs, maybe there have been die-offs. And even if there have been die-offs, it doesn't matter. All that matters is that the biosphere 
has gotten to the point where it's produced a technological civilization, which is okay. what's happened here. We had yep. five major die-offs beforehand, and we still ended up with us. That's right. That's a good point. Okay, well, let's just go ahead and run through the other three real quick, and then we'll move on to uh, some other uh, this session, this issue of whether sustainability is even possible. The first one, you just have die-off. This is right. where uh, – well, go ahead. Why don't you explain that one to us? Yeah, okay, so that was an interesting solution, and that was where um, the population rose very quickly, as it does exponentially in the beginning. Um, the, the, the planets started to change. Um, and then what, what would happen was is that the, the population overshot the carrying capacity of the, uh, of the planet at, at that moment. And so what you'd have is um, the, you'd have a very large drop in the population, but then you came to a steady state. So you'd, you could lose anywhere between 30 to 70% of, the po- of your population before you ended up with a steady state. So, you know, so that that was good, somewhat good news. I, know, I was going to say, you know, if you wanted to look for the silver lining, at least not everybody died. <laughs> right. So what that means is that, you know, you would go from, let's say you had 10 billion people on the planet. You'd go from 10 billion to, you know, 3 billion over, you know, I mean, we, did, we didn't have implicit timescales over there, but over a few generations. And, you know, and the drop-offs could be much faster than that, too. So the question, you know, that that's kind of bad news in the way in that it's not clear that if humans, if we lost one out of or seven out of 10 people because of climate change, it's not clear that this complex technological civilization we live in would manage to survive, right? It could be that everything just falls apart. So, so you know, I mean, that's an open debate about what would happen. But that, that was one of the classes of solution. You could get, you would end up with something that looked sustainable, but you had to go through kind of a crisis in order to get there. Okay, and uh, uh, go ahead and can you talk a little bit about the collapse without resource change and the other? Yeah, ones okay. That... So, so one of the things we built into the models was the idea that you know a civilization could realize that they're you know creating problems for themselves, and they could switch from one resource to another. Let's say there's a high impact resource like fossil fuels, uh, and there's low impact resources like uh, uh, solar. And what if the civilization switched from one to the other? We wanted to include that possibility. Um, but before we get there, let me just also note that even without that possibility, there was the, 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 most, the, the most fearsome or fearful uh, uh, trajectories we saw were true collapse, right? right. where the population rose, the planet um, uh, uh, started to heat up. And then what would happen is the planet got itself into some kind of runaway state where basically it was changing so fast um, that the population just, you know, it, it, the planet moved into territory where the population couldn't survive anymore. And the population came down like a stone, true civilization collapse. And so, the, you know, that's terrifying, right? right. That, that's like everybody dies. Um, and what, what was frightening was, is that we found also a class of solutions where you could change from you know, the, the civilization could realize, okay, we got to do something. They could change from the high impact resource to the low impact resources. And it looked like things were getting better. You saw the population sort of turn over and start to level off. You saw the planet, the heating start to level off. And then, boom, they, you know, the, 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 the population collapsed because the planet ran away. And that really shows you the importance of internal planetary dynamics, right? Again, planets are nonlinear systems. They have their own machinery. And if you push them too hard, they, you know, they're just going to, even even if you think things are getting better, that machinery is still clanking away and then it may, you know, may still get into a runaway state. So um, that was a cautionary tale, right? That, you know, because the whole question here that we need to ask ourselves is, um, you know, how how sensitive is our system, right? That's one of the reasons you do this, a model like this, right? You know, we want to know in general how things behave so we can see all the possibilities. And then we can look at our own system and ask, well, where are we in that spectrum of sensitivity? 
and uh, of these four that you were able to of the, that, that you published in the paper, um, were there were there any others, or were, there, were these just kind of the big the big high points? Were these there were any... the big ones. So, so we talked yeah. about like you know what do you have to can you find you know are there solutions that you have to fine tune? We actually saw very interesting. We saw oscillations where the population would rise you know, reach a peak value and then drop by 70% and then come back and drop by 70%. These are limit cycles, what are called limit cycles in the language of, so, so this whole branch of, of, of physics would be what's called dynamical systems theory. Um, and so uh, limit cycles are you know, a kind of solution you can find. And so those ones kind of needed fine tuning. So. Okay, there is, there is so much in this, in, the, in, these, in this research and in this model that is enveloped into the parameters that you used, um, but the, uh, like, for example, the ability of a uh, civilization to make decisions in an efficient, timely, reasonable manner and decide for itself whether or not it can do these things, of at least you're showing that it is possible uh, for a civilization to be sustainable. But I would like to ask you, because this is something that... I, I still think about it, even weeks after I read first read about this, is that when you think about the universe as a whole, there's nothing about it that is sustainable. I mean, stars are they, they reach an equilibrium, they live for a right. while, they they blow up or they just die, and uh, the, the most sustainable star is probably a red dwarf. Uh, so the universe itself isn't acting in a very sustainable way. It's accelerating and it expands. It may just eventually evaporate into into nothing or black holes or whatever. What what do you think about, and I know this is just an opinion, but what is your thoughts on this issue of sustainability? Is it something on a level of a civilization and a planet that's even really possible? Do you think we can do this? Well, I think, for, you know, so sustainability is a relative term, right? I mean, you know, uh, human civilization, and by civilization, I mean, you know, agriculture, city building, you know, obviously we were hunter-gatherers for a long time, and that's a kind of civilization. Sure. But I'm really referring to this sort of organized what i call the project of civilization this big communal project um and so we've been at that for about ten thousand years the industrial part's only 200 years old right so look if we got another thousand years or ten thousand years or a hundred thousand years that would be pretty awesome you know and by the time you get to those time scales who the hell knows what's next right there could be all kinds of there's going to be a whole other range of existential threats that you know could we could incur that we can't even imagine now because we don't know what kind of technology. So for me, you know, my concern is that we make it at least another few thousand years to get to the point where like we can deal with it. You know, we can we can get ourselves to the point where we can encounter the next existential threat. You know, it does you know? seem like that's the time scale, doesn't it? The next thousand years are going to be the difference for us, aren't? Isn't it? Yeah, that's really what I mean. The next thousand years, I think, will tell us whether or not we have the capacity as a species, because really the next thousand years, if we make it, is going to be the solar system, right? We are, you know, we're going to spread throughout the, that's what I would argue. We're going to spread throughout the solar system. You know, we will have managed to build a sustainable version of human civilization on earth. And then, you know, where else is there to go, but the, the solar system. Right. Stars are a long way. It's going to be a very hard trip to, you know, unless again, unless a miracle technology like warp drive, you know, is invented. We're stuck in the solar system for a while. But yeah, thousands of years is sort of a timescale where you can imagine that we've changed enough, that technology has evolved enough, that there'll be a new set of problems. So we got to kind of 
and we will, you know, will we even be human still then by then? Given, you know, well, if Ray Kurzweil has his way, no, we're going right, to be. But in general, I certainly would agree. With that. Too. <laughs> uh, a few thousand years, especially with genetic evolution, you know, that uh, it could be, you know, it would be a, it's going to be a very, look, all I can say is it's going to be a very different set of questions after 5,000 years. Uh, but if we can just, we just need to make it that long so we can get to that point and see what those next set of questions is. Did you find in the course of this, uh, in, the, in the communication that you've done after the paper came out, did you find anybody accusing you of being uh, political in this, trying to make some kind of political statement about climate change and global warming? Because I, I did when I did a store, I do I do this uh, news uh, space fan news episode where uh, where I talk about uh, the latest research and I pick a topic and one of the topics was your paper. And I I said that, uh, you know, this is a really good model for us to use here to, to decide what to do uh, about our own planet did you did you get any pushback on that from anybody or was everybody's like yeah we really we really should probably pay more attention to climate change well i've been dealing with climate change denial for a long time <laughs> i'll bet you have I'm, I'm unrelenting <laughs> about it i mean you know anybody who's got a problem with like the science of climate change you know needs to like you know needs to like <laughs> how do i say this and be you know needs to like read a book Okay, you know, I mean, the the science of climate change has been decided now for decades, for decades. You know, anybody who's like still saying that, uh, you know, the climate is uh, the science is undecided or God forbid, you know, the worst when we hear this all the time, it's a hoax or is like, you know, uh, check your politics. Right. Check check your tribalism at the door, because this is science. Now, you know, there's a whole bunch of questions about politics that come once you've absorbed the science. Like, what do we do about climate change? Oh, that's a political question. And that depends on what, you know, what political party you're part of. But the science part, the science part of, a, you know, like I say, the, ba- the fundamentals of climate change are, A, uh, we change the climate, or A, the climate is changing, and B, it's changing because of us. That part is so firm and so decided that if you've got a problem with it, then, you know, hand in your cell phone, okay? Because it's not fair to be, like, using all the fruits of science, you know? That's what I find with a lot of climate change denialists. It's sort of like, oh, you know, uh, they run to the doctors and they're like, oh, give me some antibiotics because I really, I feel sick. But, oh, climate change, that's a bunch of hoey, you know? <laughs> it's unfair, and it, and it does great damage to the American scientific enterprise. Okay? I- so there is... There's absolutely politics involved in here, but it has nothing to do with the scientific part of the conclusions. Right. So, you know, you got to separate those two so we understand what we're dealing with, right? And there's, you know, when it comes to uncertainty in climate, you know, there are questions that are, you know, there are, of course, it's science. There are places where there is, where the science is uncertain, but is the climate changing? That's not uncertain. Is it changing because of us? That's not uncertain. You know, exactly what's going to happen that part's got uncertainty in it. And that's the part where, you know, we try and do our, you know, our understanding and, you know, make, a, we're, we're making bets on the future for sure. But is the climate changing because of us? That part's nailed. Right. There's been plenty of surprises about the future of what's happened once we've discovered that the climate was changing. Certain glaciers, certain melting points are happening faster. Things are occurring at rates that were totally unexpected and, and things have had to be adjusted. So that comes from what you were saying about it's hard to figure out what's going to happen exactly. Right. We have a general picture. And it is it's very concerning, uh, but there are a lot of uh, indicators that you know this is happening in ways we didn't expect. I mean, this summer fire tornadoes, right? There's a new word for uh, yeah, it. Yeah, well, fire hurricanes. <laughs> you know, but let yep. me say, you know, my my view on this, uh, you know, I, I have uh, because from this, per- I, I feel that the astrobiological perspective 
that that we're are working with here changes a lot of how we look at climate change. Like, so for example, here's something I'm going to say that makes people angry, which is that you know what, climate change is not our fault. And here's what I mean by that: triggering climate change. We didn't trigger climate change because we're a bunch of evil, greedy, you know, monsters who you know we are like <laughs> I want to destroy the planet. <laughs> our whole, whole history of civilization is us using whatever energy source we could find in order to power civilization. It was animals, it was animal poop, you know, it was wind. And when we discovered fossil fuels, we were like, this stuff is awesome, you know? You can like heat your house. You can make internal combustion engines. We didn't trigger climate change because we're greedy. And that's like, that's one of the things, this narrative of human beings being, you know, greedy, a plague on the planet. From the astrobiological perspective, that makes no sense. We are what the biosphere is doing now, including triggering climate change. You know, we are in some sense nature's way of triggering climate change, right? right? That's a, yep, and I, I, I think you're right on that. The only thing I would add to that, though, is that while human beings aren't necessarily being evil uh, and just consuming and, and doing it uh, in any sort of malevolent way, uh, the same could not be said for a lot of the, the techniques we use for harvesting these resources in the, in the form of corporations, which really right. do have a much more vested interest in themselves than they do in anything the planet might well, have to exactly sustain. It. That's exactly it. It's, it's a, triggering climate change was not our fault. Right. Not doing something about it will be our folly. Yes. Because now we've been warned. We've Good. known. We've known now for 30 years. And, you know, anybody who's still arguing that we shouldn't be doing something about it, they, you know, they're going to be the reason why we don't make the step that, you know, I like to say that climate change is um, it's our it's 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 our uh, adolescence. It's the beginning of our adolescence. You know, we've matured as a species to the point where we've changed the, 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 cat, the chemistry of an entire planet, which is not bad for a bunch of hairless monkeys. Right? <laughs> I mean, climate change. No, there's a certain level at which we can be proud of triggering climate change. It shows we've risen up the ladder of of of, of, of civilization development. But if we don't see what we're doing and take some drastic you know, measures soon, then we're just going to like wipe our, you know, the planet will move on without us. The planet's going to be fine. Right. I but say that too. Right. Exactly. The planet's going to be just okay, but it's whether or not the project of civilization continues. So, you know, this, for me, the astrobiological perspective completely flips the script on climate change because most climate change deniers are like, Oh, you're just a bunch of tree huggers. You know, you care more about the environment than human beings. And from my perspective, climate change shows human beings are awesome. Look what we did. Now let's be even more awesome, you know, and figure out how to come into a cooperative relationship with the biosphere in a way that doesn't practice ecological hooliganism and then doom ourselves. And that brings me to uh, this idea of, we talk a lot on this channel about, the great great filters you know these are this idea in response to fermi's question where is everybody um i i've i have gone from thinking well there's so many stars so many planets 1.6 planets for every star in our galaxy we have there of course there should be other yeah. civilizations out there i've gone from that thinking to thinking wait a minute we might be the only one and the reason i'm going i'm getting to that point is that there are a lot of what i of what i think great filters and before i read your paper the one that i felt was going to get us the most was what is that that stood in our favor was is life common or is life easy to start yeah. from nothing that to me was a great filter i think it's hard to go from no life building blocks of life primordial soups to something that's alive i think that step is hard i think that's a filter but mm -hmm. we and we've gotten past that one thankfully right. but i another one is our biology and going into space you said that 
we should, you know, if we get through these next thousand years, the next space is, is, is the solar system. I'm not so sure. I think our biology might prevent us from surviving in space unless we do something raise Kurzweil about it and, and make yeah, it not an yeah. issue. And finally, so this issue to me, though, is, is, is one that I feel is even more important than that. Do you think based on your research and your uh your thinking about this uh uh in the context of your paper in astrobiology do you think life is common in the universe and in particular civilizations do you think this is not such well, a big deal common i mean because you know so so that was the, this paper i did with woody where we um you know this other paper uh, where we looked at use the x of the kepler data to and again you know always with science what question can you answer? So we used the mm -hmm. Kepler data and we manipulated the Drake equation to answer this question, right? Um, how bad do the odds per habitable zone planet have to be for us to be the only time it's ever happened in the universe, okay? So we were able, you know, by manipulating this variable. So that, that's a question we could set a limit on. And it turns out that unless the odds for developing a civilization are less than one in 10 billion trillion, then we're not the only time it's happened, right? So, so let me, to frame that better, because um, you know, somebody takes a little work on this. Yeah, I'm still we thinking about really that. Know, you know, so, so we don't really know what, the, you know, you, you, you take a planet in the habitable zone, right? You take pick a random planet. Mm -hmm. Nature, you know, nature has all these evolutionary processes, as you said, for first forming life and then going on to evolve intelligence and then intelligence going on to form civilizations. We don't know what nature actually sets those probabilities to be. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be a whole bunch of processes that we just don't have any access to. But with the Kepler data, what we could do is we could set a limit and we called it the pessimism line where we said, like, look, what we can actually figure out from the Kepler data is like, you know, where, uh, where does that, where does that, that probably, where does nature's probability have to, choices of probability have to fall for us to be the only time it's ever happened? And what from our, you know, from the data, it shows that it has to fall on less than one in 10 billion trillion, right? That one in 10 billion trillion is a very, very, very small number. So as long as nature's processes conspire to be bigger than one in 10 billion trillion, then it's happened to us. Like civilizations have happened before, so the so from what I drew from that, and I did this. We did a New York Times op-ed on it, where you know they ran the headline as being "Yes, there have been aliens," and I would have said, "Yes, there probably have been aliens," but um, you know, we got that that generated a lot of controversy. But you know, I mean, that's that's an empirical limit. That's the first time anybody was able to set an empirical limit on this probability. And so it turns out just because there's so many exoplanets in the right place for civilizations to form. Yeah, and what Kepler told you was that there were this many planets probably on average and that this, there's certain based on what Kepler found might be this many in a habitable zone. I exactly I don't get how you went from there to one in a billion trillion chance of and there not being trillion. any other civilization. Because what you do is it's really just what you do is you you take Kepler's numbers for how many planets, what's the, what's the uh, number of, the average number of planets in the habitable zone, which turns out to be uh, 0.2, right? Okay. You count up five stars and one of them has a planet in the habitable zone. Now, count up all the stars in the universe, right, since the dawn of time, and multiply it by 0.2. And you get the total number of habitable zone planets in the universe, which is 10 billion trillion. Every one of those planets is a planet where life and, and intelligence and civilizations could have formed. Every one of those is an experiment. So nature has has run 
and we know this now, right? Those numbers are pretty firm. Nature has run, has had the opportunity to run 10 billion trillion experiments in, in life and civilizations, right? So in order for us to be the only time it's ever happened, every one of those experiments have to have failed, okay? So it's really, it's a very simple thing. Now, of course, what's not included in that, right? We had to, in order to do this calculation, we had to drop the lifetime factor in Drake's equation, right? So what, we're, what, what that number tells us is that what has happened, it doesn't say what's happening now, right sure. it could be if every civilization lasts 200 years then yeah there's probably nobody around now but what we get from that calculation is that there probably have been lots and lots of experiments in civilizations and that's what matters to me from this calculation right because what i wanted to know is you know um uh what is it, if i have an ensemble of civilizations if i have a big collection of civilizations then what's their average kinds of trajectories what's you know and that's what the model gave us so what so what that the, the one in 10 billion trillion tells me is, you know what, unless nature's really perversely against it, then there have been a large ensemble of civilization. Well, even- well, hold on, though. You you said that this is that's had 100 million or billion trillion chances of success. Well, we know there's been one, right. but we that's really I mean, so it's OK. It worked. But the there wasn't necessarily 100 billion trillion civilizations out there that no, just had no. that many All had that right. many chances to, to to make one but as long as so but again this is where so if you could do it if you somehow had god's computer and you could you know somehow know all the laws of physics to a perfect and you could calculate what the probability per habitable zone planet was you know of forming a civilization what, what our result our empirical result showed was as long as it was bigger than one in 10 billion trillion then what has happened to us has happened before Okay. okay. So if you're so if if a, a pessimist wants to say, look, we're the only time it's ever ever happened, they have to show that the probability for habitable zone planet is smaller, smaller than one in ten billion trillion. So okay. that's why we just argue that, like, you know, the numbers here are overwhelming. That it's ha- you know, I, I can't tell you how many times it's happened before, but it's probably happened before. Okay. You know, and it does, again doesn't mean anybody's around. And again, that. you're talking about the entire universe, exactly. and and I'm not so the galaxy. You know, yeah, yeah we could yeah. easily be we could be easily be the only civilization in the galaxy right now. I would have no problem with that. Okay, but but the idea that it's happened so again, what I'm concerned with in this paper was, you know, I want to know whether we're going to make it. Right. So <laughs> yeah, I, we do. <laughs> so I want to know. It's like you know. So I, in my book, I start the book off with um, in, with this image of a bunch of teenagers in an encounter group, right? And they've all had problems. They've you know stole cars or whatever. And you know, like when you don't have for a teenager, if you don't have anybody else to talk to, you think like, oh my god, my life sucks. Nobody knows what my problems are. You, know? <laughs> you talk to other people, you're like, oh, other people have histories like mine. It's you know that I, that I can use that. I wanted to do the same thing for civilizations, right? Because we think we're the only time it's ever happened and we don't know what's going to happen. And what I'm saying is that, you know what? Probably this has happened before and we can try and learn from those other histories, even if right now only by doing the modeling. I think that's a great point. Okay, let me let me ask you uh, Juan uh, Astorga-Wells' question. Considering the current population and energy growth, as well as our planetary resources, how much time has the Earth before it's too late? Can your model predict this? Um, I would say right now my model cannot predict that because the model doesn't have that. Kind of, the model was not specific to the Earth. Um, so when again, I also I want to be careful when you say how long for the Earth before it's too late. The Earth's going to be just fine. Yeah, that's right? important. Point. So like even if we even if we trigger a mass extinction, 
right? That's not the end of the earth. Remember, the only reason why we're all here is because of the last mass extinction, right? Before the last mass extinction, there were dinosaurs everywhere and mammals were like hiding in the shadows. And it was the last mass extinction that allowed mammals, the age of mammals to begin. So like mass extinctions don't end the, bio, the biosphere. The biosphere actually kind of uses them to create new niches and, and do more innovation. It's refreshing. Ah. <laughs> well, from, you know, from the long-term biosphere perspective. Now, that's not a license for us to practice ecological hooliganism. That's what I always have to say when I show that. Yeah. The real question is how long do we have? Right. Yeah. If, you know, the question is if the if the Earth's climate drifts into some other state, because it's been in some very crazy states in the past, it's going to be very it's, it's hard to imagine human civilization of the kind we have surviving. Um, and, you know, that question is it's hard to say. But, you know, look at what's happened this summer. Right. We are just beginning to see what climate change looks like. And, you know, and in Seattle right now, or at least yesterday, breathing the air was like ha smoking seven cigarettes a day. Yeah. You know, because of all these forest fires. So, you know, yeah. I would say that if we don't do something pretty radical pretty soon, it's going to, you know, we have a, a, a couple centuries at most. Or, or it's going to, I mean, I don't, you know, it's very hard. As, as Yogi Berra said, the prediction is hard, especially about the future. Here's how but, you, uh, I'll, I'll give you an economic, here's how you know the, it started uh, red flag. If yeah. you when you go to try to go to South Florida and Miami and buy a house and you can't get insurance on it, that's when you know that the the beginning of the end has begun. Because in, insurance companies are going to know and well in advance whether and they're not just going to loan them, give a mortgage out uh, yeah. on a house that they think is not going to be around in the short term. So look for those when mortgages yeah. start getting hard to get in South Florida or you know Myrtle Beach or wherever it is that's on the coast. Yeah, that's a red flag. Yeah. Let me get to uh, Launchpad Astronomy. He is asking, what are the timescales in the models, or were they iterations? And you said that you really you weren't you weren't very clear on the timescale of your model. Well, because the timescales are you know it's 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 in the parameters that the the, the the we we were using dimensionless parameters, so we had a dimensionless time. So you know we'd have to go back and actually put in real physical values, and the models aren't there yet. You know, okay. the what I can say is the collapse was very sudden. You know, the collapse was the collapse would have been, you know, over over timescales that were short relative to the generations uh, of, uh, of the biology. Right. Um, so uh, but there weren't inherent timescales in the model. So, so let's just talk for a second about the future of the models. What we want to do now is actually build in real climate models, real physical models, real, you know, some very super simple biological sort of uh, um, biological models in there so in the future we'll have we'll be able to do this and actually include real time scales and and and, and get a sense of like you know for a given planet what is its probability of going into one of those different zones? and you kind of did that with population a little bit you said at least the press release i read that you used an example of easter island which uh, i think a lot of people had some issue with as a possible model for the population uh, well, the interesting thing is we took the, some of the, you know, when I, you know, I'm not a population biologist, I'm right. a uh, numerical fluid dynamicist. So when I started, you know, working on this, I had to go into the literature and learn the literature of population uh, ecology, which was awesome. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I, I, I finally found the piece of the model that was really important to me in models of Easter Island, you know, people modeling the collapse of Easter Island's uh, society. So that was kind of an interesting, and Easter Island is like the Ur example 
of, uh, of, uh, of uh, civilization collapsing. Now, of course, you know, with Easter Island, everybody knows it's, it's complicated. But I mean, it's, you know, I've been reading the literature and it's hard. Easter Island, you know, the eco, the eco side played a role. There may have been other things going on, but, the, the, you know, the, the overuse of resources, the consensus, I think, still is, is that, that you know, that played that played an important role, if not the, you know, uh, quintessential role. Yeah, that was that was that was the thing I had to explain a lot too. Was that Easter Island was more complicated than just using trees and and resources right. and dying right. off. Um, one plot. I'm going to try and read your question, but I'm not sure I understand it. If a similar species as humans existed on a super Earth, would they reach the same developmental timeline as us? Hence, population plus technology, and then carrying capacity less impacted due to the planet size. So I think he's asking. If we did this on the super Earth, you had already mentioned if we were just a little bit further out in the habitable zone, we'd have a yeah. little more wiggle room. Does this, does the size of the planet give us more wiggle room, perhaps? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. You know, the problem with population growth is, it especially you know when you're res not resource limited, is it's exponential. So you're pretty quickly you know having a planet that has you know six times more surface area isn't going to help you for very long. Um, during that phase of you know super rapid population, you know think about it. We crossed the one billion mark just in 1850, right? So, you know, there's more people living in a in a small size city now than lived on the entire planet before the, the birth of agriculture. So, you know, our population has been this. Yeah. So a super, I mean, it's a great question. That is a super cool question. And I'm, you know, I'm really excited about modeling different kinds of planets, but I think, you know, my gut reaction is the exponential phase overwhelms your, your increased surface area. Yeah, and that... Uh... Uh, the um, uh, I want to get to Angel Views. Okay, Angel's View has a comment. Uh, there is no such thing as sustainability. This is a planet Earth where toxic chemical corporations destroy ozone and life. There is where there is where you dream of, and there is what is there is what you dream of, and then there is what's actually happening. And that's my concern too, uh, Angel's view. I, I I believe in what you know what Adam has said is true about humanity's intentions, but there are other forces that scare me and that are motivated by things other than their own survival. They are motivated by profits and at the expense of common sense things like well, how are you going? You know, or how sustainable is this going to be in the long run? And that's my worry is the short sightedness of all of this. Another thing that's not really talked about here was something Carl Sagan was worried about a lot in the '80s, which was things like technology destroying us and, and that's another topic but that was sort of related he was very concerned we were going to blow ourselves up and not make it so for him a great filter was nuclear annihilation nuclear war yeah yeah so um uh by audience yeah go ahead um you know i mean listen uh, i think climate again if climate change i'm gonna argue it is 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 uh, a generic outcome of having a civilization like that anybody who you know any species that develops technological civilization triggers climate change then whether or not you make it through or not probably depends on a what your what your uh evolutionary baggage is right you know like so are you did you you know you can imagine maybe if you're a hive mind you know if it's intelligent termites that it would be easier for them to get their act together and act collectively um so either it's what you know evolution gave you in terms of your behavioral characteristics or it's your ability to to evolve new behaviors right so climate change is an evolutionary pressure Right. So now I'm, I'm no expert in evolutionary biology. So people can yell at me. But my understanding is, is that evolution happens when there are pressures applied to species and and climate change is a pressure that's being applied to us. I have no idea if we're going to make it. I certainly hope we do. 
But this is the moment when these behaviors, you know, that have have both served us well and not served us well in the past, where like some of them were either going to figure out how to change. You know, the Paris Accords, as weak as they were, were a very interesting step. Like the whole world, you know, managed to get together. <laughs> I could believe it. Well, I know. <laughs> so that was like that was like oh, you know, maybe it's possible for us to develop, you know, uh, these kind of collective behaviors. A consensus of some kind. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Right. Right. So you know, we'll see. I, I hear what you're saying, and you know, this is this is uh, uh, as one climate scientist put it: climate change is humanity's final exam. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a great uh, source of pressure. And we'll see how if we're up to the task or not. It'll be an interesting right. few thousand task, next right. thousand years or so. Well, all right. I, it is. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and, and stop here. I want to thank you, Dr. Frank, for, for taking time out uh, to talk about it. He is a professor at University of Rochester, and his new book is called uh, Light in the Stars, Alien Worlds and the Fate of the Earth. It's available now. The link is in the description box. Go check it out. Uh, lots to think about here, folks. Let me know what you think. Even though the live stream is over, I'm still looking at your comments and questions. Please leave them here uh, in the comment section. And if I don't know the answer, maybe I'll, I'll, I'll bother Dr. Frank with it with an email and maybe he might be able to answer it for you. Uh, otherwise, um, I want to thank you all so much for watching. Next Thursday, we're back with the Future in Space Hangout, where I think Harley has got on tap. We're going to be talking with, with people from NASA uh, on the Parker Solar Probe. So we're going to see how it's doing uh, coming uh, after it uh, on its way to the sun. So uh, check in next week, and I will see you guys later. And thank you all so much for watching. And as always, keep looking up. <laughs>